Have you guys enjoyed watching the Olympics uh, the past two weeks? You know, I thoroughly enjoyed uh, watching Michael Phelps win his 23rd, his 23rd gold medal. You know, it's one thing to win gold. It's quite another to set a world's record. Do you know, did I say Michael Jordan? I said Phelps, okay. Well, did, did you... Okay, discuss this among yourselves. But did you know Michael Phelps, not Jordan, Michael Phelps has broken the world's record 38 times in his career. Now, that's amazing to me. Absolutely amazing. You know, um, my favorite events in the Olympics took place this past week, track and field. Uh, I have... Three kids, two of them went to college on track scholarships. My son Daniel was a sprinter. My daughter Laura, she threw javelin and shot put. Have you ever picked up an Olympic shot? I mean, the first thought that runs through your mind is, whoa, what does this thing weigh? Second thought flashing through your mind is, how far do they throw this thing? Eight, eight feet? Golly, I don't know how far I could throw it. Well, I want you to know that this past Thursday night, Ryan Cruiser of, of the American team set an Olympic record by throwing a 16-pound shot. This thing weighs 16 pounds, throwing it 74 feet. Now, that's a distance that begins here with a sign that says launch, and it flies all the way across the stage, and it lands at the base of the sign called land. Now, that is amazing, but, but you, you really can't appreciate uh, Cruiser's feet unless you pick up one of these and feel its weight. In fact, I'm going to ask John, would you, would you come up here and feel this? you to feel what this thing weighs. How far do you think you could throw it? 12 feet. 15 feet. 15? Maybe. Yeah. Well, well, I, 10 feet. I, I tried it yesterday. I threw it 10 feet. All right. And then I dislocated my shoulder. Yeah. 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 You know, there are really only two people in this room that can appreciate what Krauser did in the Olympics. That's John and me. Now, why is that? It's because we're the only two that have picked up this shot. Right. Thanks. Sure. Thanks. Did you know that a major, the major focus of the book of Ezekiel is on the weight of God? I mean, the question I have is, how, how do you weigh something that's invisible? I mean, by what measure do you weigh the weight of God? Well, if you turn to me, turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 1, we're going to find out together. You can follow along as I read. Verse 1. Now, it came to pass in the thirteenth year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the captives by the river Kibar, that the heavens were opened up, and I saw a vision of God. 
on the fifth day of the month, which was in the fifth year of King Jehoiachin's captivity, the word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel, the priest, the son of Busi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the river Kibar, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. Now, Ezekiel has been training for the priesthood his entire life, and at age 30, it was the time where he would step into his priestly duties. It's at this time, when he's getting ready to take on priestly responsibilities, that God interrupts his life, and he calls him to be a prophet instead of a priest. Now, it would been much easier if Ezekiel had remained a prophet. I mean, prophets, they were highly esteemed. They were well-respected. I mean, priests were highly esteemed and well-respected if you'd remained a priest. They were highly esteemed, well-respected. Prophets, on the other hand, well, they were despised and they were persecuted. I mean, it was dangerous being a prophet. Evil people don't like being confronted. They just don't. But these weren't normal times. You see, at this time when Ezekiel lived, uh, when, when he was just 18, uh, the armies of Babylon swept in from the north and they took Daniel. You remember him? He wrote the book Daniel and a number of noble officials captive and took them back to the capital city where they served uh, as uh, helpers in Nebuchadnezzar's court. And then ten years later, when Ezekiel is twenty, or eight years later, when he's twenty-six, uh, the armies of Babylon sweep back down toward uh, Israel. Uh, this time, what they end up doing is ransacking the temple. Uh, they take King Jehoiakim, Aho- uh, Jehoiachin, and his wife captive. And they also arrest uh, all the priests, uh, a number of skilled laborers and craftsmen, and they took all of them back to Babylon, leaving the poorest of the poor in Jerusalem. Now, Ezekiel found himself in this deportation, and he ends up in a refugee camp here by the Kibar River. Now, the Kibar River, it it flows out of the Euphrates and flows away from the capital city of Babylon. Now, remember, that's where Daniel is. He's serving in the palace of the king, and he was taken in the first deportation. And and then uh, Ezekiel was taken in the second deportation, and he is serving in the refugee camp by the Kibar River. Now, you've got the old prophet Jeremiah. He's been left back in Jerusalem. He wasn't taken in any deportation. Can you see what God is doing? God is employing His forces. He's got Jeremiah back with the people in Jerusalem. He's got Daniel in the king's palace. And he's got Ezekiel here in the refugee camp. And it's while he's in this refugee camp, God comes to Ezekiel and he approaches him. But he doesn't uh, engage him with a dream like he did Joseph. He, He doesn't approach him in a burning bush like he did Moses. What you discover is he comes to Ezekiel 
in a vision. It's a vision of God. And let me tell you, what he sees is spectacular. Let's dig in. Verse 4. And then I looked, and behold, a whirlwind was coming out of the north, a great cloud with raging fire engulfing itself, and brightness was all around it, and radiating out of its midst like the color of amber out of the midst of the fire." Now, on this particular day, Ezekiel was praying down by the Kibar River, and God approaches him in a vision. And this vision is so unusual, so outrageous, that you'll discover Ezekiel has trouble um, communicating it. In fact, you'll see him repeat words like, it's resembling, or it looks like, or it's an appearance of, again and again and again. And, and commentators, they've gotten bogged down trying to explain the details of Ezekiel's visions. Artists have been frustrated uh, trying to capture what he saw on canvas. And I want you to know, anything I say will be totally inadequate to describe what Ezekiel actually experienced there uh, in the refugee camp. But probably the best way to engage is to realize that what Ezekiel saw was not really a picture of God as much as it was an experience, an experience with the glory of God. Now, did you notice it? It begins with a storm. Verse 4, it says, And then I looked, and behold, a whirlwind was coming out of the north, a great cloud with with raging fire engulfing itself. It's as if the heavens open up, and a, a cloud is blown toward Ezekiel. It's carried along by a north wind, and there's lightning flashing in it in all directions. Now, you need to know in ancient literature, the north was considered the abode of the gods. The abode of the gods. In fact, in Isaiah 14, you have Satan himself declaring this. He said, I will ascend to heaven. I will exalt my throne on the furthest side of the north. Now, why there? Because that's where God is. He was said to be to the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Well, Ezekiel seems to have this vision, and this vision uh, seems to be uh, like of the throne room of God. Now, you've got, you got to remember, this is some of the most trying times in the nation's history. I mean, they have suffered greatly in captivity under the Babylonians, and many of the Israelites have thought God has surely abandoned us. Now, it's at times like this that God's people need to know that God is still on His throne. And He's still accomplishing what He desires to accomplish in the world, His purposes. I mean, maybe this morning you're hearing, you're kind of feeling like the nation of Israel. Maybe it's because of a medical diagnosis you received at the end of last week. Or maybe you're in the midst of a family crisis. Or it could be that you're just plain discouraged over the, the moral and ethical climate of our political system in the United States right now. Now, Ezekiel's vision. Ezekiel's vision is a great reminder that God is not confused. 
He's not caught by surprise. He's on His throne. And He's doing exactly what He desires to do. So the question is, so how do you weigh God's glory when you feel overwhelmed by the weight of your own gory circumstances? Well, that's what we're going to answer this morning. Uh, Let's continue. Look at the last half of verse 4. It says, And the brightness was all around it, and radiating out of its mist like the color of amber out of the midst of the fire. You've got to remember, God riveted Moses' attention by uh, coming to him in a burning bush, and he seems to grab Ezekiel's attention by coming to him in a burning cloud. And when Ezekiel looks closely at the cloud, he notices four human forms inside it. Verse 5, so from within it came the likeness of four living creatures. This was their appearance. They had the likeness of man. Each one had four faces, and each one had four wings. Now, we're told later in Ezekiel 10 that these four human shapes were not human at all. In fact, they are cherubim. God's angels. Maybe you're familiar with cherubim. I mean, God stationed two uh, to guard the the garden, uh, the Garden of Eden, to keep Adam and Eve from returning to the garden after they'd sinned. And the images of two uh, are over the mercy seat and the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle, with their wings outstretched, touching one another. In fact, in Psalm 80. It says, God exists between the cherubim. That's where God's presence was said to exist in the temple. And so, what we have here are these four creatures. They have four faces each, and they, they have four wings. Now, it gets even stranger. Verse 7, And the legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the soles of calves' feet. And they sparkled like the color of burnished bronze. Uh, the hands of, the ma- of a man were under the wings of the four sides, and each of the four had faces and wings. And their wings touched one another. The creatures did not turn when they went, but each one went straight forward. So these cherubim, uh, they, they could move in a direction without turning. They, they were going straight forward and they could move any way they wanted without turning, which implies that they could move quickly to accomplish God's purposes anywhere on the globe. And the four faces allowed it to see in all four directions at the same time. Now look at verse 10. As for the likeness of their faces, each had the face of a man and each Each of the four had the face of a lion on the right side, and each of the four had the face of an ox on the left side, and each of the four had a face of an eagle. My goodness, what is he talking about? Well, scholars have debated for centuries, what do the four faces represent? And some say, well, the four faces represent the four Gospels that were to come. I mean, Matthew represents the king. Uh, uh, presents the king, Jesus is king, that's represented by the lion. Mark presents him as a servant, that's represented by the oxen. 
Luke presents him as human. That's represented by the man. And John presents his deity, which is represented by a soaring eagle. Others have said, no, no, the four faces, they they speak of the sovereignty of God over all his creation. I mean, man is the pinnacle, the highest of God's sovereign order. The lion, well, it's the noblest of all all wild beasts. The oxen are the strongest of the domesticated animals, and the eagle is the noblest of all the birds. So what do the faces represent? What do they mean? Well, we don't know. But but there may be a hint. There may be a hint to their meaning found in Genesis uh, chapter 9. Now, it's in chapter 9 that God makes a promise to mankind that He would never flood the earth again. And He gives a rainbow uh, as kind of the signature of that promise. And as He reiterates the details of that promise, you, you find God mentioning not just a promise to man, but to the birds that could be represented by the eagle, the cattle, by the oxen, the wild beast, that's the lion. So maybe the four faces are a symbol of God's sovereignty over all creation. In fact, that is a theme throughout the book, the entire book of Ezekiel. And that theme is God is in charge. Notice in verse 11 what it says. And their wings stretched upward, two wings each, one touching another. And two covered their bodies. And each one went straight forward. Uh, They went wherever the Spirit wanted to go. And they did not turn when they went. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches going back and forth among the living creatures. And the fire was bright, and out of the fire went lightning. And the living creatures ran back and forth in appearance like flashes of lightning. My goodness! In the book of Revelation, when it talks about God's throne room, did you know it describes these same four creatures there? And in its description is fire, flashes of lightning, and the sound of thunder. But when you come to Revelation 4, you'll discover, along with the four creatures, there are also 24 thrones around God's throne containing 24 elders. Now, that has led many commentators to think that what you see here is more like uh, God's chariot throne rather than looking into God's throne room. In fact, do you guys remember your first car? Every man in this room remembers his first car. I don't know about the ladies, but I know every, every man does. I mean, after I turned 16, my dad told me he was going to get me a car, and I was thrilled. I thought, Wow. Maybe I'll get a GTO. It might be a Mustang. Maybe a Plymouth Roadrunner. Those were fast, cool cars in my day. And then one day my dad showed up with this. Nineteen sixty one American Motors Rambler. He struck a deal with a man that was putting his mom in the nursing home and wanted to sell her really cool car. Well, it wasn't what I had in mind. Now, but I promise you, God's car, His chariot, 
looks nothing like my rambler. Look at verse 15. Now, as I looked at the living creatures, behold, a wheel was on the earth beside each creature uh, with, its, with its four faces. And the appearance of the wheels and their workings were like the color of beryl, and all four wheels had the same likeness. The appearance of their working was, as it were, a wheel in the middle of a wheel. And when they moved, they went toward any one of four directions. They did not turn aside when they went. So you've got these four creatures, and now you've got four wheels, each with an intersecting wheel like you would find in a gyroscope. So you've got these light-colored green wheels enabling this chariot to go any direction instantly without having to turn. I mean, it just moves the direction it wants to go. So what's very obvious here is this thing is not stationary. In other words, you could say God's ride is equipped with cool mag wheels. But notice what else it says, verse 18. It's for the rims. They were so high, they were awesome, and their rims were full of eyes all around the four of them. I mean, I think this thing's saying that God has a set of really cool light green lit up mag wheels on his chariot. But, but you need to know, commentators say the eyes, they are really a symbol of God's intelligence and perception. He sees all and he misses nothing. Verse 19 goes on. When the living creatures went, the wheels went beside them. And when the living creatures were lifted from the earth, the wheels were lifted up. Wherever the Spirit wanted to go, they went because there the Spirit went. And the wheels were lifted up together with them, for the Spirit of the living creature was in the wheels. Wherever God's Spirit wanted to go, that's where these wheels moved. And I mean, this must have been an awesome sight for Ezekiel to sit there and take it all in. I mean, picture in your mind, use your sanctified imagination. You've got these huge wheels. You've got these four creatures. They're enfolded in, in fire and lightning. And you've got all these eyes around the wheels. Many commentators say this is a picture of the providence of God over the circumstances, the events of life. You know, life, life can be confusing at best. I mean, it comes at us from every direction. We scratch our head, we want to know why. You know, I've discovered in my own life that when the storms of life begin to blow in, there are three truths, three truths about the providence of God that I've got to remember that allow me to stay firm, weighed down, my, my feet firmly set and stable. Now, those three truths... Or first of all, God is in control of all things. In other words, nothing comes into my life that He hasn't allowed. The second truth is God is all wise. What He allows to come into my life, then it must have purpose and meaning. Now, I may not understand it, but He does. 
And the third truth is God is all loving. What He allows to come into my life, well, it's for my good. Therefore, I can trust Him. I don't know how many times those three truths have pulled me out of a ditch when I felt overwhelmed by the circumstances of life going on around me. Now, having looked outside, on the outside of this really cool chariot God has, it's as if Ezekiel now begins to look inside. Verse 22. He says, In the likeness of the firmament above the heads of the living creatures was like the color of awesome crystal stretched out over their heads. And under the firmament, their wings spread out, straight out, toward one another. Each one had two wings covering one side, and each had two wings which covered the other side of their body. So Ezekiel looks at this chariot. It's almost as if he's looking at the bottom, and he's looking up, and he can see through it. And what he sees is the headliner, the, the dome, the ceiling of this chariot, and he calls it the firmament. And the first thing he notices is that uh, these creatures, these angels, cherubim, they have two wings that cover their own bodies, then two wings that go out straight, almost as if their wings are providing the platform upon which this chariot or the main part of the chariot rests. And then verse 24, it says, When they went, they heard, I heard the sound of their wings, like the sound of many waters, like the voice of the Almighty, a tumult, meaning a roaring sound, like the sound of an army. And when they stood still, they let down their wings. A voice came from above the firmament that was over their heads, and when they stood still, they laid down, let down their wings. So he discovers when this chariot moves, it sounds like rushing water. If you've ever been to Niagara Falls and know the roar of the falls, you need to picture that in your mind uh, here. And when they stood still, he says, well, the angels just dropped their wings. But he appears deeper into the chariot. And he notices, of all things, a throne. Verse 26. And above the firmament, over the heads, was the likeness of a throne in appearance like a sapphire stone. Uh, On the likeness of the throne was the likeness with the appearance of a man high above it. So Ezekiel sees the likeness of a throne and and it's blue like a sapphire flashing with light or with fire or lightning or something. Now, commentators have suggested that the wheels we've talked about on the chariot, uh, well, they they speak of God's omnipresence, that He's everywhere. And then with the eyes along the rims of those wheels, they speak of God's omniscience, that He knows and sees all. But, The throne. This throne speaks of the omnipotent authority God has over all His creation. Now you'll notice as he looks further above the throne, there is the appearance of a man. Who is this man? 
What we're going to discover, Ezekiel seems to think, he's seeing the image of Yahweh, Israel's God. Now, from where we sit in the New Testament, we can look back and see that this is probably an image of the pre-incarnate Christ. So let's keep reading. Also, from appearance of his waist and upward, I saw, as it were, the color of amber with the appearance of fire all around within it. And from the appearance of his waist and down, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire with brightness all around it, like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day. So was the appearance of the brightness all around it. And this was the appearance appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. So above this throne, there is something that like a rainbow above it. Now, Noah saw a rainbow after the storm. Here, Ezekiel sees a rainbow above the storm, implying that God is, is even in control of the storms of life. And then notice, this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. Now, when you think of the word glory, what do you think of? Light? Brightness? You tend to think of brilliance, maybe so brilliant and so bright you can't look at it? But did you know the word glory in the Hebrew text here means heavy? It means weight. Now, now John got a feel for the meaning of glory when he came over here and he picked up this weight, uh, this shot. And then he considered that Krauser threw this thing 74 feet. You see, glory has a weightiness, a heaviness to it. When you see something glorious, I mean, it results in um, it results in you feeling amazement. I mean, glory. Well, that kind of inspires admiration, but at the same time, it'll provoke humility. You pick up the shot and you feel the weight, and you you consider the distance between each of these signs. And the thought that runs through your mind is, my goodness, who could do that? I could never do that. Well, that's the humility that it provokes. Now, God's glory, well, it's more than His accomplishments. But probably one of the best ways to look and describe God's glory is to say it's the visible demonstration of His attributes, His character, and His perfections. You could say God's glory is the weight of His composite nature. It's the sum total of all that makes Him who He is. Another way of putting it is God is the complete package. And in a mere glimpse, just a glimpse at what He does, well, it it inspires admiration and at the same time it provokes glory. Now the difference between God's glory and Krauser's glory is that God's glory is an intrinsic glory. 
In other words, God's glorious by nature. It's not based upon what he does. It's based upon who he is. Krauser's glory, well, uh, that's an ascribed glory. It's not innate to him. It's based upon what he does. He wins the Olympic gold. And the other thing about God's glory is that uh, it exists whether we are aware of it or not. I mean, it's intrinsic to God's nature. He has glory by virtue of who he is, not what he does or what others say about him. By the way, the biggest boost to your self-esteem will come from knowing God's opinion about you. You see, when you know what God thinks about you, it really doesn't matter what other people think. By the way, did you know you are not who you think you are? From God's perspective, on your worst day, this is on your worst day, here's what you are. You are adored, enjoyed, clean, righteous, forgiven, accepted, complete, chosen, able, intimately loved, smiled upon, protected, enjoyed, cared for, understood, known completely. Given all mercy, you're guarded, bragged on, defended, valued, esteemed, heard, honored, favored, lacking nothing. You are nurtured, secure, believed, given all grace, pure, shining, precious, cried over, never frowned at, never mocked, never punished, given complete access. And loved beyond your imagination. Now, if you're a Christ follower, that's how God sees you. And it's true about you whether you believe it or not. That that means next time you feel guilt or shame, you've got to ask yourself, what weighs more? My guilt or what God says, His forgiveness. Next time you feel like you're only as important as your latest successful project, you've got to ask yourself, what weighs more? My boss's, his critique or God's opinion? That's the way you weigh God. That's the way God's glory, His weight, keeps you stable, strong, feet firmly planted, even in the worst of circumstances that come your way. Now, you've got to remember, God's glory is not predicated on what He does, but it is revealed by what He does, and that's exactly what's going on here in Ezekiel 1. Notice how Ezekiel responds 
to the glory of God. Verse 28. And so when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard a voice of one speaking. As Ezekiel begins to comprehend that in the midst of all the suffering and tragedy going on all around him, that God's glory is still intact. He's still on his throne. He becomes weak need. He falls to his face in awe and respect of God. You see, when we realize God's glory, His weight, that He's always working, He's intimately involved, He's never wrong and He's never late. Our natural response will be to worship. 